Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brian Kamaletic and today we are speaking with Principal and Director of Furtado Sullivan, Sandra Furtado. Sandra is a registered architect in both Australia and Portugal, and in 2012 she received a Master's Degree in Sustainable Development from the University of New South Wales. Sandra began her, began her architectural journey over 30 years ago, aged eight, when she started designing imaginary projects. With technical support provided by her father, she began testing her first ideas on paper using different model-making techniques and experimenting with various materials. Her inquisitive nature and curiosity are still present today in everything she puts her mind to. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Sandra Furtado. Thank you, Branko. Okay, so I dug something up. A couple of years ago, you were interviewed by this magazine, by our magazine, mm-hmm. actually, and you said, and I quote, there is a cost-effective way to achieve environmental efficiency, even if the client doesn't want to. What exactly do you mean by that, and uh, is that still applicable today? Yeah. Um, I, um, one of the things that I discovered as I studied sustainable development is that there are a number of overlays that, um, uh, in terms of lines of thinking that come through the design process, and there is this uh, almost like market expectation that um, a green building is a sustainable building and that's kind of the way that the market uses to um, potentially get the revenue they want uh, from a commercial perspective. But that sustainability at heart is something that can be achieved through clever design and, and that comes sometimes through um, the thinking of the the. the proportion of the spaces, the orientation of the rooms, the sizes of the windows, um, the amount of airflow that, you know, you, 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 you create by placing windows in certain directions, by understanding the, the environmental um, constraints uh, of the site and then designing towards that. And what I mean by the, the client doesn't necessarily need to be on board is because those are things that are almost like inherent to the practice of architecture if you use um, the principles of vernacular design. Vernacular design. Okay, please explain. Um, so, v- v- vernacular design is is um, is an expression that that is is used to describe um, design thinking that goes back into the roots of um, human beings in, in in terms of civilization and in how they develop techniques and and design thinking around. The um, materials and and uh, expertise that existed within their in their local context. So um, vernacular design, for example, in, if you think about it in the context of Australia, would be different from, um, say, for example, some European cities or Africa because they relate to you know your culture, the materials that you've got available, the type of um, leaving um, uh, um, methodol- methods or or, or um, um, spaces that you kind of need to create uh, your environment. If you know, and if you think, for example, about specifically about um, Australian architecture, probably you would think that the, the vernacular of Australian architecture comes from uh, the Aboriginal um, living and, and the nomadic um, kind of nature of how they um, uh, thought about the the environment and and lived around the environment and if you think about for example Glenn Merkett and um, the way that he's interpreted some of those principles and in a contemporary way use materials and 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 with with design kind of a 
appropriated those into a contemporary fashion, that's almost like taking the principles of vernacular into contemporary design. Your experience, your experience tends to go across about, I think, about three or four continents. Is that mm, correct? More or less. More or less. So, okay. So, in that context with what you just said, um, when it comes to the overall approach to architecture, what are the you, you've described some differences, but what are more, more and perhaps more obvious differences between, say, the way architecture is approached in Australia mm-hmm. and say Europe or the Middle East or or Africa or um, I think there is there are two key things. One is um, it's it's the, the scale of the project um, and um, the tech, the technology that you know is specific to a country and 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 how um, um, and, and and how the the industry kind of delivers um, that product. Um, and and the other thing is about the it's about the, the type of client that you work with and and how how uh, visionary they are and how willing they are to to create a product and I think there is also a difference um, and and that is less so, so of in terms of the difference of working across continents but there is a difference when you work with a client that is creating an asset for themselves versus a client who is developing something that is then going to be taken over by a third party. And what I mean by that is, for example, when you, you know, when you're developing a multi-residential building, in in most cases, the developer develops a product, and the product is then transferred to a, an end user, and that end user is the person who, or is, or that group of people are the ones that will then become the owners and, and of that asset, and will have the the carry-on costs of maintaining that asset over time. Whereas if you build a building with the hat of an owner, you're thinking, how am I going to um, build something that is going to last, how I'm going to build something that, you know, has a reduced maintenance cost that is energy and water efficient because those things eventually um, become so meaningful in terms of the running and the operational cost that then at the beginning you think, well, I, I want to design for all these environmental efficiencies. Whereas with, say, for example, a building that you're passing on to someone else, it you know, it, it becomes to uh, the, the the discussion becomes how can I make this probably as cost effective as I can, even if on, on the operational side is going to be more expensive. Um, there are two different lines of thought, um, and then you know, in terms of procurement, I I had an interesting conversation last night yesterday um, with a, a a gentleman that he he works on the construction side and he worked in the UK and. He's now in, in, in Sydney and he says, you know, in, in Australia, architects don't know how to build. And he kind of made that blunt statement because he wanted to, like, upset me or he wanted to, like, um, get me to uh, fight, fight back with him. And, you know, he really didn't mean that at heart. But what he did say is that because of the, at least for large projects in Australia, you've got a procurement process where, you know, the architect develop a design up to a certain um level of documentation and and it's usually about 70 percent design development and and with those set of drawings um your client is going out to market and he's asking for the market to give him a price and and then from that point onwards um the 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 client um, will choose a um a builder and a tender 
um, from that group and then the architect gets navigated to the builder and that is something that is fundamentally new and it, it was new to me when I came to Australia because not, never in the past the architect was working for the builder and the builder was dictating what needed to be done. Um, there was almost like a collaborative process as you are developing the design documentation with the builder to try to understand, well, what is the most cost-efficient way of thinking about a design solution that addresses, you know, issue A, B and C, as opposed to uh, we need to, you know, reduce the cost of something by 30%. Um, and, and then the architect doesn't really understand um, unless there is clarity about where um, the money is being spent, how, how are you going to design to the budget? Um, I think it's, it's, um, maybe it's a little bit complicated to explain without having concrete examples, but um, I think procurement makes a huge difference about the quality of the built environment overall, and I think that it's an unfortunate that it's become the mainstream um, um, mode of, of, of construction um, in Australia. Not only does it sound complicated, it sounds stressful. Um, <laughs> it sounds very, very stressful. Speaking of which, um, a couple of weeks ago, you sat on the mental health panel at the 2018 Sustainability Live panel event. Um, this was a very interesting event. I mean, sorry, a very interesting panel, I should say, mm -hmm. because it was. I, I don't think we've held a panel featuring that subject or that area. Um, and I know stress plays a, a huge um, a part of mental health, but why did you choose that panel? And, and out of interest, what are, I mean, from your perspective, because you, you're actually out there you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the field, what are the main issues um, when it comes to mental health in the, what we call the ABC industry, the architecture, building and construction? What, what do you see? The reason why um, I, in a way, I wanted to be in the panel and I found it interesting is because I've, through personal experience, been um, been taken to almost like extremes where you do question your um, your uh, role in 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 the profession and and wh whether it's relevant and and whether it is. Um, and whether you've got uh, a, a place. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that happens because of external pressures and, and, and then and, – and, and sometimes those ex external pressures come from um, not just, you know, tough deadlines to deal with, but it becomes um, the fact that, you know, it, it comes down to how much support you get from the people around you to solve complex prob pro problems and – um, at, at, at times, um, that can happen in a small project, but it can also happen on, on a large, complex project. It, um, it, it, it's about almost like learning in, in architecture how to manage a discussion and, and, um, and, and, and a process. And um, I think sometimes, you know, when, when you think about the, the, uh, the architectural education and, and, and what are the things that, you know, are, are critical and, 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 and what are the tools that you need to then become relevant in the workplace. And then you get into the workplace and you realize that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly about managing relationships and it's about teamwork and it's about communication and it's about um, 
uh, almost like ne- ne- a continuous negotiation process uh, that involves design and involves creativity and involves problem solving. Uh, but you know, when you when I when I factor in the time that I spend sometimes, you know, day, daydreaming about opp- like design opportunities and ideas, and, and and when I think about the time that it you know it takes us and the team to uh, develop and put. A rational argument forward to to the client and others to convince them that these ideas are you know feasible and worthy. Um, that is a, you know kind of a task in itself. But you know personally, uh, there are points where um, I think that uh, the, the 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 conversation is is um, has been avoided because it's a different is a difficult conversation to have because it it demonstrates weakness and you know no one no one wants to show their vulnerable spice because vulnerability um, sometimes um, might, might might be interpreted as um, uh, you know not a good quality to have when you need to be tough and you need to like put your point across and 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 get things through. Um, maybe from a client perspective, maybe from uh, you know, uh, you know, you seen by by your peers because, you know, it's you've got to at the end of the day try to convince others to um, follow your dream and 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 sometimes you know your your dream costs two hundred million dollars, and you know it, how how do you get all these people along to, you know, help you build that vision. Um, the, you know, and then the, the, in the industry as a whole, I mean, there are so many different levels of um, relationships that architects um, deal on a day-to-day basis and, you know, put aside the, the relationship internally with the office. You've got to bring all your consultants together and sometimes, you know, you've got meetings where you have 30 people in the room and, um, and you know each one of them sometimes are working on multiple projects and how do you get them to focus on you know the issues that are pressing you and in and 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 sometimes you know if you if you are at a point where you are under pressure and you don't have anyone to kind of use as a bouncing board you 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 find refuge in maybe the things that you you know you shouldn't and um I, I, and and then on and the and the other side. Sorry, I forgot about this. Um, and the other side is uh, one is working through the design of a building. The other one is delivering that design. And you know when you go on site and when you have to um, go through a process where you know you, again you're, you're solving problems, but you're solving problems with a group of people that you know sometimes in australia i've 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 heard so many different languages being spoken on site and sometimes there is a communication gap between um you know the foreman and the 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 people that are doing different tasks and sometimes the tradies don't really communicate with each other and um i've i haven't experienced that personally but you know on as a, as an architect who is um employed by the the builder um you've got a you know try to keep you know tr- try to keep everybody's interest obviously in 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 line but at, at the end of the day you also want to deliver a building that is beautiful um and oh it's is it's, it, is it it's like jean, jean paul sartre said hell is other people is, is, <laughs> 
know. I think it's working together. But you know, like I've 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 heard stories of colleagues that you know have been broken by uh, having tough experiences on site, and you know that they, they had to go and take um, time off and have uh, psychological support and. Um, you know, and there was not very much help coming from the practice to kind of support them. And you know, all they're doing is trying to protect the interests of the the, pro- the project and, and and therefore the practice. So, you know, when those things happen, you you know, you do question what's right, and 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 in you hope that when you are in you, in that you first you 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 will never you try to never be in that position to. You know, if you are in a position where you can make change and you can influence that, you you you've got to try to help them or, or try to protect them. Um, so it's it's about um, being open and and well, one being aware as as a as a practice leader, but also being open to you know have a conversation if you do see that you know someone is struggling. So, can I ask? Is it it, does it vary in terms of intensity in uh, on project to project or sector to sector in terms of where you're actually what you're actually designing or where you're working on? And is this a cultural thing? Does it change in other countries, or is, or is it same, worse, better? In other, how, how is it, how is the comparison? Oh, look, I I I can't generalize because I think um, it 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 happens mostly practice to practice. Um, Country to country, it's usually something that you know, um, something that that relies on. Sometimes the, 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 the it's it's mostly about industry, and it's mostly about respect and, and respect for the profession, respect for what you bring to the table. I mean, architects um, in in Sydney com- compared to my experiences overseas that. There is a, you know, there is an imbalance in the way that people look up to you and and, and respect what you bring to the table. Um, I think architects here are almost, you know, I don't want to use the word mar- ma- mar- marginalized, but um, I think that you know they are seen as um, another consultant in the realm of consultants that give advice on the project, and you know, like the will the future of architecture be. Um, be that that you know there is no mastermind architect who kind of dictates how things go or not dictates but is the master of that process um, is is the architect just you know a person who guides a dream and and gets the help from all this technical expertise uh, consultants around him to to try to deliver it it's the million dollar question okay <laughs> You spoke a bit about different designs and, and, and different types of um, roles and responsibilities. What is your favourite your favorite design or, I guess, your favourite thing to design and what would be your least favourite thing to design? I mean, and, and why? Mm. Um, I, th- I, I like to solve complex problems and I, I like to be challenged. So, you know... I, I don't know what's the least favorite thing. Maybe the least favorite thing to design is something that is so highly prescriptive um, that you feel like, you know, and, and when you're working with someone that doesn't really give you a, a room to 
out of all those constraints to come up with something um, meaningful and different. Um, so it's not about what, but maybe about the drivers behind um, what what is essentially the brief that is asked of you. Um, and you know, I I think about, for example, um, examples of programs that that would probably in the past people would say, oh, you know, an architect would not want to do industrial states, or an architect would not want to do waste waste plants. I mean, what kind of a ugly infrastructure? All you have to do is kind of an envelope. Uh, but you know, there are examples of um, you know y- young architects or young architectural practices, and I mean architectural practices have been you know in in the in the in the business for maybe 10 15 years that are designing amazing uh, uh waste management plans because they are reframing the 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 question they're thinking well how can these piece of infrastructure coexist in this space and how can we make it meaningful for the community and actually it's more than just a waste management plan and and to me, that's the beauty in it. Is that how can you find beauty in things that maybe are a little bit more mundane or ordinary, and and that you can try to, you know, bring an overlay of of interest and um, synergy that makes it meaningful for the, its the immediate the immediate community, but also meaningful from an architectural perspective to become, uh, you know, an asset of significance to the city. Um, that's actually interesting. So why can't we have, you know, the Guggenheim of, of waste management plants? I mean, you know, the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but good design doesn't really cost much more than bad design, does it not? Is that, would that be, I mean, if you've got beautiful design, it's, mm. it shouldn't really make that much difference. And in terms of, from the design phase, anyway, the building phase is a different story, mm. obviously. But so why can't we have, you know, beautiful, oh, I don't know, um, um, telephone exchanges mm. or, or waste or waste um, management plans that that would make i mean it's it's in the public space mm. it's in the it's you know usually it's in, you can see mm. it usually mm. not always um would that not make more sense absolutely i look i think um there there is a certain amount of infrastructure that has been built um at a period where maybe things were just trying to address the functionality and maybe there were not enough architects nor or or people interested in challenging what the, those parameters were and um and, and hence why they've they've been like that forever um but you know why why aren't we thinking about the f- the future i think it's a question for um, the, the 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 people who are the decision makers and who form those briefs and and who procure those projects to think well actually maybe we should you know have an, the opinion of an architectural committee or group or or the institute to try to see if there is um, an interesting way to reframe the brief and when you do put those uh, projects out to tender there is something more aspirational than just just serving the purpose for what they're being you know built in the first place. So it comes also from you know a side of education and awareness to the people that are investing um, in in infrastructure. So I've been digging around um, some of the things that you've written over the years, mm. um, including your. 2011 dissertation uh-huh. for your masters. Um, um, 
correct me wrong, it was called Entering the Ecological Age, Carbon Neutrality, Myth or Reality, from which you, you received, um, yes, yes, the internet, you can't hide from the internet, um, Sandra, um, from which you received the um, University of New South Wales Bookshop Prize in Sustainable Built Environment for the best project addressing sustainability issues in the built environment. Okay, so let's talk about carbon neutrality. Um, so... I mean, this was 2011. We're almost in 2019 now. Mm-hmm. Um, is carbon neutrality, in terms from a built environment perspective, yeah. is it more myth than reality? And if not, shouldn't we really be talking about the positive or carbon positive? Because from from what I'm seeing is is that um, it, it, carbon neutral is a bit like, to put in car terms, is a bit like hybrids. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you're halfway there and then then you've got full electric or whatever, whatever we'll end up with. Is is, is carbon neutral um, a, a myth and is carbon positive is where, where we should be going or looking at at least? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that was interesting um, for me as I was um, – as I began that research um, was to understand that there is a whole lot of jargon being used for from from multiple industries and, and, and media about – um, you know, what's the true meaning of carbon neutrality when you're looking at the built environment? Because some people would say, well, we're looking at carbon neutrality purely from an energy perspective, right? So it's how intense um, is your, uh, you know, your energy consumption over time and, and can you offset that in terms of, say, if you're thinking about a society where that is managed by carbon credits, you know? Um, or, you know, do you go deeper and you think about the impact of uh, the, 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 the asset that you are designing and developing and, and you think about the carbon intensity of all the materials that, you know, you need to use to build that building and, and then that goes, you know, back to um, our, 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 are you designing the building for the next 50 years, 100 years, or are you designing a building f- for... Um, you know, for 10 years, because some buildings are designed in, in terms of its structure and, and, and its um, kind of um, envelope for, for, for 50 years. But then there is almost like an expectation that every 10 years, everything that happens inside them is going to evolve and change. And, you know, if you think about that and if you think about the life of of the the different components of the building, much like, you know, you, you, know, you do when you think about... Um, you know, in your house, you've got the walls. You you know, but how often do you do you refurbish your kitchen, or how often do you you know you change the tiles in the bathroom, or how often do you change your couch? It's kind of a, a similar kind of approach. And and when you think about the carbon intensity there, then the calculations become almost so complicated that you know. It, 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 because you have to think about the impact now, and you have to think about the recurring impact of maintenance and the the fact that you know the building might or may not be recyclable, or it because that also has an impact on whether you count or not the the the, the carbon credit for utilizing some of the materials and repurposing them somewhere else. So because there are all these different nuances per se it's you know when when people talk about carbon neutrality it you almost you know you're trying to simplify something that is actually really complex so i i i began that thinking that you know it was mostly about energy consumption and i realized actually 
this is really complicated and no one really really worked it out how how to word it properly um but if you were to look at that from purely a energy perspective you know you'd think well actually um human beings you know in any sustainable built environment uh is is only sustainable for as long as its users have sustainable behavior. So you can have a super efficient building, but if you leave all the lights on and you're not there, you know, your energy consumption goes up regardless, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to human behavior. Um, many studies have been uh, done to, an, you know, that prove that it's really hard for a building to... Um, it's not impossible, but depending on the proportion of, uh, you know, the, the, the footprint of, of a building in terms of, say, a high-rise building has um, a lot of stacked levels, but it has a small roof. Uh, you know, a, a building like um, a warehouse um, has maybe one or two levels and it has a long uh, extent of roof. If you're thinking about harnessing energy from the sun, of course, the, the one that has the largest extent of roof uh, area is the one that is going to be able to collect more energy, but it might not be able to have as as many users inside to utilize the energy when you compare it to a, you know a high rise building for example so you almost have to think about you know um, energy and, and, and efficiencies not on a building per se level, but how a building connects and plugs into its immediate network and how you can almost play in terms of infrastructure and in in and and a play of synergies between users that can actually create efficiencies. And if you look at that at a precinct level, you end up getting a more efficient model than if you try to solve it on an individual by individual building basis. And for example, Central Park was, I think, maybe one of the projects that ha- that has um, done that in a quite unique way and uses and it, and part of the the you know UTS University. I think they they, they share some services. This is all invisible infrastructure that you know people can't see but at the end of the day um, you know by connecting um, different buildings with different types of users you can almost create um, uh, kind of efficiencies within those because the peak energy for uh, offices happens at a time where there is low energy for residential and then kind of that balances out at night Um, the 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 big question uh, you know when you when you're trying to create systems that rely on different users and different ownerships is who, uh, you know, who owns that infrastructure, who maintains it. Um, if something goes bad, who takes responsibility to fix it? And these are things that, um, you know, are, are still, I don't think they have been worked out properly in Australia. And I think that's why um, the, some of these innov- innovative precincts are not being um, implemented at, at a larger scale because there is always a problem of who owns what and how we're going to do this. And then it becomes too complicated. Would doing more adaptive uh, reuse or you know, more re- repurposing, um, I guess, I don't want to use the word heritage, but... Mm. Um, old bu- or other buildings would that would that help in the, in this process of you know with getting our carbon footprint down? Do we do not enough of that? Um, someone told me that we should be doing a lot more. I mean, is, is that is that one way we could we could go go about with the carbon footprint? Um, 
Yes. I mean, if you, for example, you look at um, a building like the AMP Tower, um, the on top of my head, um, and I know that I'm not going to get this number right, but when you look at the um, the energy intensity that goes into all the different building elements that form a building, the structure is the one that has the, the most amount of impact in terms of energy intensity and in terms of also um, investment in cost. So if you when you're looking at adaptive um, adaptive reuse and if you're thinking at a building as a whole keeping the structure and provided that the structure is sound um, is going to save you a huge amount of um, energy savings from one not having to demolish it displace it and then obviously putting back in all the rio and the concrete and forming it up and going all the way up so sometimes it you've got to assess it on a case by case basis um, because if you know the structure is one, then it's a, it's about the facade, so the building envelope, um, and you know, and and again, it comes down to the quality of the materials, and you know, if you have some materials that have been used fifty years fifty years ago or or, or older, that um, have the capacity and the ability to last, then and if there is a desire and they serve the purpose for which they've been designed for, then by all means, you try to maintain and restore it and keep them. Um, some some build, old buildings have been you know designed with materials that are that are not long lasting and therefore you've got to almost think about you know a smart way in which you can bring them to a new life um but do it in a you know in a again in a meaningful way so that you're not solving the problem for the next 10 years but you're solving the problem for the next 50 years Turn our, turn our attention to a subject I really know nothing about, women. Okay, so let's talk about women in architecture. Mm-hmm. Nearly half of all graduates in architecture are women, roughly. Mm-hmm. It varies from university to university, but you know, 45 48%, 52 depending on which university we're talking about, which state we're talking about. However, women constitute less, and this is a, these are... A couple of years old, these figures, but less than one in four of all practicing architects. Um, there's been a number of, I guess, ideas or, or, or reasons for this that, that I, I've heard. But in your opinion, why is this so and, and what can be done about it? Or can anything be done about it for that matter? I'm smiling because this is, used to be a topic that I used to um, debate uh, fiercely with my previous business partner. Um no, you can debate I, fiercely here. So. Yeah. <laughs> I won't argue. No, I think things are being done. I think, look, um, everybody is different. Uh, and um, I I never thought of me as being um, a woman when I began my architectural journey. I always thought that I was one of many people in a team. And... And uh, recently, um, recently mean, meaning maybe a few months ago, uh, I was talking to um, one of my um, previous um, pa- business partners, essentially. Um, he was at principal level with me. And, um, you know, I, and I, I was arguing because, he, because he's been part of um, uh, a, a group that 
that uh, the Institute of Architects has has um, kind of developed in in, in in it's called the male champions of change and I think they started about four or five years ago and they've done a wonderful work um, and I used to debate with him and and you know for those who listen um, I I used to question you know what's the value of having um, you know a group of very um, influential and 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 um and talented individuals in a room discussing the the um, but all males discussing the problems and and of of uh related to to women that they might not have experience in the workplace and they don't have anyone there to represent so if it's if it's a champion if it's it's the institute championing diversity then that should be a group that is diverse trying to champion the the, the 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 women in the profession and you know I used to 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 tell him that you know I I was tougher on my colleagues than he was because I maybe I I just thought that everybody had to be as driven as me as crazy and hardworking as me and uh, as um, motivated to like um, get get what I needed to get done um, and he. And 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 then it was only when he told me once that, uh, you know, like, um, I, you have not realized that you have worked twice as hard as me to get there, and and it was only when he said that that I actually looked back and I thought, oh, maybe I have worked twice as hard. Um, I just never really questioned it because I was so focused on trying to get there, and I think since we had a conversation, I've been a lot more open to. You know, being maybe more supportive of other people around me, regardless of whether they're you know women or or guys. But um, I, yeah, I I I don't think I realized that I was I was being hard, and um, and and then maybe some some people don't realize that they're being hard on others, and and you know, coming back to the mental health conversation. Some some women and, and and some men, but sometimes for women it might be hard. Um, are um, feel that you know it comes to a point in their life that maybe you know this type of pressure is not worth it, and they just move on because there are other priorities in life that you know make their career less meaningful for them to feel accomplished. Oh, interesting. So. Is there also something that we could do uh, from a school level? Is is, is this I mean, the, what you've just described? Is 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 a, is a journey once I guess you are already out of university. Mm. But is there perhaps a problem before we get to university? Is there? I mean, uh, is there is there a problem with with uh, labels or with, with taxonomy of of, of of careers or what we're calling calling? Is that an issue or? Or, or, or is 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 it just um, oh, I don't know a, a focus or the way schools want to focus mm-hmm. um, you know their students um, abilities is, is is there something that that could change there as well? Uh, there was an ad I saw um, a few months ago that um, talked about. Um, uh, wage disparity, mm-hmm. and it was really funny because they had uh, kids, and they were um, talking to kids about um, share, sh- you know, working through something and then getting lollies as a kind of a reward for their task. 
and um, the 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 way they've demonstrated or, or tried to challenge this idea of um, of the the salary disparity was that you know to the b- little boy they would give him a glass full of candies, and to the girl they gave her a half glass full of candies, and they just gave it to them, and the kids kind of just both looked at each other's and they questioned like why does she have less than me, and and um, and and it was interesting because you you know you think that a, a child's brain is as pure as it can be so it is something that happens at some point in our youth that is almost um en- engraved into our brains that creates this idea of um differences in terms of capability capacity and 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 skill and and maybe the 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 reward of that comes from that bias that is and you know unconsciously um uh uh in 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 instilled in someone's brain i you know does it happen in university does it happen before is it, you know is it a fundamental cultural shift that needs to happen from a young age um and you know it, it's a it's almost the same as you know talking about positive psychology and, and about the effect that um even when you think about it, you know education and 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 the, the 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 fact that it's it's almost like there is a constant development and and you know technology is changing the way we learn and it's changing the way we work but it's also changing the way we we communicate um does 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 that also play a part in how we you know we look at each other and how we learn to respect each other equally with Crone, I believe, mm-hmm. and then with Lipman and Associates from, mm-hmm. from memory. You've now gone, you're a principal and director of your own own firm. Mm-hmm. Um, so both from your professional growth and also from a general industry point of view, what does the um, future look like for Sandra Furtado? Rosie. Rosie. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very nice looking future. Yeah. No, it uh, um, it is. I think... The, the I think having experience working um, on on both smaller and larger practices gives you perspective about um, what are the things that you know you need to look out I mean in in, in terms of not just thinking about the design um, per se but you know thinking about the structure of the practice the management of the practice the procurement of a project and also, you know the challenge of having your own, um, you know, studio is that you. Um, it, it's for me, it's less about you know feeling ownership of the work and and trying to drive the design. You know, a lot of architects go on their own because they're like, oh, you know, I feel like I I I want to design my own buildings, and you know that's not really my thing. Um, I for, for me, it's about being able to shape a conversation and to work and be surrounded by people that. Um, I I have I, I enjoy spending the day with and, and it's about us developing ideas together and working with clients that are willing to you know like you said earlier in the conversation it's not about how much money you spend to make something great but it's about how you you know manage the resources that exist on the project and try to get 
the best and 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 interpret the brief to try to get the best outcome for a project and you know using your creativity to do that and you know working with other people i think up to a certain point gives you um uh, you know the base knowledge you know and 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 now you're you're almost taking that and elevating that to you know to kind of develop that journey for yourself if you were given one last thing to design ever what would it be Ooh, I don't know. You don't know? No, I'm not fussy. You're not fussy, okay. <laughs> so even even a waste management facility. Oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> if 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 there is a desire to you know have have a, a meaningful overlay to it, it's a it's it comes down to um, it just really comes down to working with people that are as, as aspirational as you and. You know, sometimes I talk to people like, oh, you know, maybe she's a bit of a dreamer and she doesn't really know, like, you know, that this is reality. And you know what? Like, the world is full of people that, are, you know, go from A to B with a straight line and they don't really challenge or question anything. The world needs people that, you know, can bring delight and, and, and um, you know, and, and some kind of en- enjoyable experience for those around them. Um, and and with that creates something meaningful for you know society. That's really how I see the, the you know the role of an architect within in in practice for for the community. Yes, you know you're resolving your brief. Yes, you know you're making money to the client, and you know yes you're trying to like you know build something that has been crafted by you and in those around you. And and but you know. How important is that if you have a miserable process to get there? You would need to have fun. Okay. So but so legacy is important then? Yeah, it is important because um, it's, it, you know, it's, if, if, if you don't leave a legacy means that your footprint in, in, in the time that you've been in this world is meaningless. And, you know, legacy doesn't mean that, um, you know, you need to have, you need to build the greatest and the biggest building in town, but it's about building things that are going to have a meaning beyond you, uh, you know, you being there or, you know, or, or your, um, your touch to others. Um, I think that's the power, the powerful nature of, you know, buildings that, you know, become, uh, and are embraced by the public, um, that that that's what architecture should do, I think. Sandra Furtado, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design, and we've been speaking with Sandra Furtado. Until next time, goodbye.